All right, good morning, good morning. Uh, man, it's good to be back with you guys. That was a sweet time, the series in Heritage, just hearing what the Lord is doing through our church family. It's a special thing. It really is that I, most, yeah, just most churches don't get to have all these other churches coming through and us hearing the testimony of what God has done. It's, it's a cool gift that we get to be a part of. Um, but this morning, we're back in Acts. We have only a few sermons left in Acts. We started last, January 2018. This is our 53rd Sunday in Acts together. Um, and we have just a few more. So we're going to be covering a good chunk of the story. We're going to finish the second half of Acts 22 and then all the way through Acts 23. So we'll be reading a good amount of scripture this morning. Um, So be ready for that. I'm just going to read only two verses to start, and then we're going to cover all the rest of the verses as we go. Um, I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 23, verses 10 and 11. Just we'll read that to get started, and then we'll pray and get into it. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. So I'm reading Acts 23, verses 10 through 11. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him up into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your living and active and inspired and powerful word. Lord, thank you that in some mystery, like this is a true story and it's history, but it's also God breathed. And every word that we're gonna read this morning has like supernatural power in it, has has the authority and power of the word of God. And so Holy Spirit, would you make your word alive to us? Would you speak to us? Even as we uh, spend time in your word, would we have a sense that like Paul did, that you are near, that you are with us? Would we have a sense that Jesus, you are drawing near to us? Jesus, as you spoke to Paul, would you speak to us? Would you encourage us? Would you reaffirm and clarify our calling to bear fruit, Lord? Um, And and even as Paul was suffering in prison, that you drew near to to him, Jesus, as as those this morning have come in who um, may be suffering, or maybe a season of suffering is to come, would you prepare us, Lord, to suffer well, to know that you care about us, you draw near to us in those moments, that you are with us and for us, that we would bear much fruit. So please, Holy Spirit, help us as we dive into your word. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, we were starting at this kind of dark, discouraging moment. We were let into this scene in Paul's life. Um, he's, he hasn't committed any crimes. He's simply been faithful to Jesus. And yet in this moment, he is alone, unjustly in prison, It's nighttime. There's likely not even, think about it, there's probably not even a torch lighting his cell. He's got fresh bruises and wounds from being beaten up by a mob the day before. He's just all alone in prison. And suddenly, like, Jesus shows up. Um, And and we read, it says he stands by him. And it's not exactly clear if this is just a vision, but the language of, of the Lord standing by him gives us the impression that likely this is the literal risen Jesus who came to meet with Paul in his prison cell. 
And Jesus is going to speak to Paul and he's going to encourage him. And we, as we dive deep into this, we're going to learn more about how to suffer, how to suffer for Jesus, what Jesus does for us in our suffering. But before we slow down at the verse we read, chapter 23, verse 11, um, we're going to back up and we're going to read various moments. I'm just going to give a a few comments as we read through the scriptures just to kind of get a picture of what's going on here. Um, Even a step further back, just to remember, because we haven't been in Acts, remember Apostle Paul, he's been spending years as a missionary, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a leader in the early church movement. And then he's been compelled by the Spirit hey, you need to go to Jerusalem. And so he's like, I have to get to Jerusalem. As he's on his way, he's visiting different churches and the spirit through the gift of prophecy is warning Paul, you are gonna suffer. And people are telling Paul, Paul, don't go. We don't want you to suffer. But he's like, I have to go. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I'm even willing to die for Jesus. And so he shows up in Jerusalem. Um, Almost right away, the Jews spot him and create a, a crowd and they accuse him of preaching against the Jewish religion, against the temple. And um, they begin to beat him and the Romans step in and intervene and rescue his life. They're bringing him up into uh, like a jail cell, up this tower, these steps. And as Paul's there, he asks the commander, hey, can I speak to them for a second? And he says, uh, okay. And so Paul turns around and he begins to preach the gospel to the crowd that just started beating him. And they actually listen to him up to a point. And that's where we pick it up in Acts 22, verse 22. That's where we left off, so get that open and ready. We'll have the verses on the screen if you want it there. Um, And actually, I'm gonna read verse 21 to hear the last thing Paul got to say. It says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then verse 22, The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for the citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him, ordered the chief priests and the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. So briefly, we we see Paul as this whole, he's getting falsely accused, right? He hasn't done anything wrong, but the Jews are all stirred up about him. So Paul gets arrested and the commander wants to figure out what's going on. And so he does a common practice. He arrests Paul and he's gonna flog him to get information out of Paul. Uh, To be flogged was, you had this wooden handle, it was called a scourge or scourge, I don't know. And it had leather straps and bits of metal and bone on the ends of it. And it was known that, 
if you even survived getting flogged, you would be um, handicapped for life. So it wasn't like a casual thing. And so Paul's getting stretched out there. And in this moment, Paul, um, while he's, though he's willing to suffer for Jesus, as we all should be, he's like, I mean, this is kind of like, I'm, if I can get out of suffering, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And so he brings up, hey, are, you know, I'm a Roman citizen. Are you allowed to do that? And by law, it was illegal to flog, to do this practice to a Roman citizen. And so the soldiers kind of realize, oh my gosh, they go to the commander. The commander is amazed. It's kind of, we get let in on these little conversations. I, I'm not sure exactly why the Holy Spirit wants us to know, but they're here. So the, the commander's like, how are you a Roman citizen? And Paul's like, well, I was born one. But the commander's like, I had to pay a lot of money. Anyways, they finish up the conversation. Um, he sends Paul back to jail. And then the next day, he calls Paul before the Sanhedrin, which are the, the religious uh, rulers of the day. You have the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the high priest. They all come together to find out. The commander's just trying to figure out what's going on. So then we pick it up, uh, chapter 23. Let's read the first five verses. It says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those who standing near to Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize he was a high priest for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Um, Briefly, this is just a fun kind of drama we get let in on. Um, On the one hand, we're kind of like, I read this, I'm like, yeah, Paul, get him. Like he's just, Paul's using his gifts of language. Um, But it's pretty pretty safe to say Paul was acting in the flesh in this moment. Uh, He may be right, um, but it's, it's so ironic because he wrote himself with his own hands to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter four, when we are reviled, we curse, no, we bless. That's what Paul himself wrote. And we know Jesus models when Jesus was, same thing happened to Jesus, unjustly arrested. He was struck on the mouth. He doesn't return with vitriol and just like, God's going to curse you. He says, Father, forgive them. Um, So on some level, we even see Paul Paul more or less apologize like, oh man, I didn't realize the high priest. The Bible says I can't do that. He's like, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, This was either an act of humility, although it's it's just worth mentioning um, some people in church history, Augustine and also John Calvin, they were famous pastors, Bible commentators. What, what they, they don't think Paul was actually um, apologizing. They think he was being sarcastic when he said, essentially like, I didn't realize a man such as you could be the high priest. Like someone who would order me to be struck on the mouth, I just couldn't fathom you would be the high priest. We don't know exactly what Paul was getting at, but Paul's having a rough day. He had a rough night. He's not, you know, totally in the spirit. Um, we can't blame him, but let's continue on. Let's see what happens next. Verse six. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. 
there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So Paul, we see here, he's just trying to like, okay, at least half of this crowd, maybe I can kind of distract them and maybe they could defend me. And that's what he does. And they start actually defending him. But things fall apart so much so that the commander's like, I'm not getting any answers about what's going on here. Let's put Paul back in prison and, and let's wait. Let's see if we can figure something out later. So, so now Paul finds himself back in a jail cell in the middle of the night. And that's where we, we catch up to verse 11. And I'm just gonna read this verse one more time. I really believe this verse is the heart of these two chapters. Uh, it says this, the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome. Now, uh, we're gonna learn a few things this morning as we, as we kind of just meditate on what is going on here, specifically in this verse. Uh, we're gonna learn a few things about suffering from the life of Paul. And the first thing to notice here is this. As we suffer as Christians, Jesus stands near. As we suffer as Christians, Jesus stands near near. Paul is all alone. He's suffering unjustly, unfairly. And, and I think it's important for us to notice first what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't do what, what he has done in the book of Acts, which is show up in the middle of the night, do this jailbreak. Paul escapes. That's, that's awesome. Jesus doesn't do that here. Uh, it's also important to notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul doesn't even ask Jesus for freedom. There is this sense that Paul is exactly where God wants him to be and what Paul needs even in the midst of this suffering is not a change in circumstance. He needs the presence of Jesus with him in his suffering. That as he suffers, it's enough for Paul that he, he would simply know that Jesus is standing with me. Um, Paul is no stranger to suffering. I want to read briefly a passage uh, where Paul was testifying about a previous season of suffering. Um, I, I want to read it because I know this morning that some of us are in a season of suffering. Some of us um, may, may feel like church is, uh, is kind of just too happy. Like, yeah, we're just going to share the nice things and the happy things. And maybe the Bible doesn't really have anything to say about my actual life and my real problems and my suffering. And I want us to know that the Bible has much to say about it. And so let's look at this, these verses Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. We do not want you, I think that's a typo, that's my bad. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might, might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us again. On him, we have set our hope 
that he will continue to deliver us. Paul has experienced great pressure, like beyond his ability to endure so that he's despairing of life itself. We know as humans that suffering is a part of life. But as Christians, we have insight into suffering that the world doesn't have. God has revealed truth about us in our suffering. And the first is this, that in our suffering, Jesus stands near. And I want us first, look at the Holy Spirit-inspired grammar in verse 11, okay? It says, the Lord stood near Paul. It says he stood. That's, that's significant because the prominent picture of Jesus in the New Testament, the risen Jesus, is what? He's seated on his throne. The prominent picture we get time and time again of Jesus in the New Testament is him seated on his throne. I want us to see this in a few verses. Colossians 3.1, I think we have, yep. If, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus right now? He's seated at the right hand of God. In Hebrews 1, 3, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's a picture of the high priest when he would be finished with his work. He could sit down. He did a good job. Jesus, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, it's done Jesus can sit down. The work is finished. And then even this this kind of prophetic picture of the Messiah in Psalm 110, where the father is saying to the son, this is what it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where Jesus is, we see this picture over and over again. He's seated, he's ruling and reigning as the king of kings. Uh, There are only two moments in, in the whole New Testament until Revelation, where we see Jesus stand up, only two. And they're both during the suffering of his saints. The first is when Stephen, the first martyr, is being killed. He sees as literally stones are hitting his body, he sees heaven open, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then here, we see Jesus standing beside his servant, Paul. Jesus is ruling and reigning. He's seated on his throne, but something gets Jesus up off his throne. And it's the suffering of his church, of his body. Guys, Jesus is not unfamiliar with our suffering. He's not passive to our suffering. In some mysterious way, Jesus is actually with us in our suffering. This is actually like this crazy deep theological truth from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God suffers with his people. And, and to address our title, where will Jesus always be? Where will you always find Jesus? In your suffering. Think about Paul, who's all alone in a jail cell. Have any of you felt or do any of you feel alone? experiencing the suffering that is loneliness. Listen, Jesus stands near you in that place. Paul was in prison unfairly and unjustly. He was literally, he had bruises and and cuts on his body that people uh, inflicted upon him. Have, Have any of you 
been unjustly, unfairly treated, even abused by people? Have you been abandoned or unloved? Do you have relationships that did not go the way they were supposed to go? Church, hear this. Jesus stands near you in that suffering and in that pain. Paul was in the dark. Some of us, I know, feel surrounded by darkness. Like this, a deep depression where you cannot see or experience hope or light. And I want you to know this, church. This is true. Even if it's all dark to you, Jesus stands near you. And as Psalm 139 says, the darkness isn't dark to him. He's with you. And as Paul was in chains and imprisoned, church, any of us who are in circumstances that we cannot change, we have no power to change, Jesus stands with us. Some of us feel imprisoned to sin. And the Bible says Jesus is with you and that you actually have power over those chains because Jesus is with you. Jesus stands near to his church in suffering. I want us to see this in the Bible. We have a few scriptures. The first one is this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Man, if you're crushed in spirit, there's almost nothing you can do, but Jesus comes for you. It's not like something we muster up. When we are crushed in spirit, the Lord, like he did for Paul, comes and he, he runs to us and he is near to us in our brokenheartedness. The next verse, for what, this is Moses in Deuteronomy, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And one more. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, he who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, this is how Jesus could be seated on his throne. And also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. And actually one more in Isaiah we have, this is, this is amazing. This is Yahweh, God, King of Kings. In all their affliction, Israel's, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Church, we have to know this truth. Even, even if our emotions uh, can't quite lay hold of it. In our suffering, if you belong to Jesus, he stands with you. And because Easter is approaching, we have to remember this. This is, this is the most important thing you will hear today. Not only does Jesus stand near you in your suffering, he stood in your place for eternal suffering. Yes, we may have temporal suffering in this life, Paul writes, it's going to be light and momentary when compared with eternity because if we are, are Christians and have laid hold of Jesus, our eternal suffering that we deserved for our sin and rebellion against God, Jesus came and stood in our place. He took that suffering away on the cross. Jesus hangs on the cross and took our eternal suffering in our place that we would never experience that kind of suffering, which means every bit of our suffering has an expiration date. Every bit of suffering is not the final story. Jesus stands in our place. 
And I just want to say this morning, if you don't yet know Jesus and haven't surrendered your life and put your faith and trust in Jesus, number one, hear the good news that though you have rebelled against God and deserve eternal suffering, Jesus came for you in love for you and said, I'm going to live a perfect life and die on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And if you would come to him, your eternal suffering will be removed. But then also hear this, that you have the offer of the presence of God for the rest of your days, that though we will all suffer, he will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Psalm 23, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because he is with us. I just want to invite you to come to Jesus this morning. That's the first thing we, we got to notice in this verse. But there's, there's something else we need to notice in Acts 23, verse 11. It's this. Jesus stands near so that we may testify about him. Man, it would be even just enough if Jesus was just with us. But there's a purpose in it. Our suffering And Jesus' presence in our suffering has a purpose, that we would testify about Jesus. Uh, This text, this verse, is a really helpful follow-up. If you were here last week and we read John 15, what it is to abide in Christ, the main work of a Christian is to simply be with Jesus, to be near to him, to abide in him as he abides in us. That's the most important thing we could could know, to abide in Christ. But what John 15 verse 5 says, I'm going to read it. I think we have it. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, what happens? You will bear much fruit. One of the essential byproducts of our abiding is that we would bear fruit. Paul was in prison, was suffering, and Jesus shows up to him and says, Paul, take courage. I'm with you. You have more work to do. You have more fruit to do. I have more fruit to bring out of your life, even in your suffering. And did you know that, man, this is hard. John 15, verse two, let's read it. Every branch that does bear fruit, guess what God does? He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Pruning hurts. Pruning is cutting away. Pruning is removal of something that was, used to be attached to us. Pruning feels like death. Pruning is a biblical metaphor for suffering. And I, church, we hear this. Your suffering may be your greatest gospel platform. Your suffering for Jesus. Your suffering in life may be your greatest opportunity to bear fruit for Jesus. It was for Paul. It definitely was for Paul. That's why Acts like 22 to the end, Paul is in chains, unjustly treated, arrested, and yet as he is suffering, as he is in this unjust situation, he is able to testify again and again before kings and rulers and ultimately Rome itself of the gospel. That's how suffering works in the kingdom, which is amazing because it means it's not in vain. It means it's not pointless. It means it's not useless. Our suffering is used by God that we would bear more fruit. Uh, I want us just to see this principle in an amazing classic Bible story. Do you guys remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
So good, right? In the book of Daniel. Um, if you don't know it, I'm gonna read it to us uh, out of Daniel 3. This is like story time with Jesus for a second. This is so good. So quick uh, setup. There's this king named Nebuchadnezzar. He stole all the, well, he captured all the Jews and now they're living there and there's some young Jewish guys in his court Um, royal court and Nebuchadnezzar sets up this huge statue and he gets all the rulers together and he says I'm going to play music and you all need to bow but these were uh, God-fearing Jewish men who are like we're not going to bow and so they get you know tattled on and they come before King Nebuchadnezzar and here's where I'm going to pick up in Daniel chapter 3 here's the story furious with rage Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so these men were brought before the king And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your mighty hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest armies, the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and were thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own. Church, I know many of us are facing scenarios and situations in which we are suffering deeply. And number one, like this story shows us, Jesus is with us. But even more than that, he's going to use this suffering and his presence to be an opportunity to proclaim his majesty and his power to save. King Nebuchadnezzar 
became a fear of Yahweh as he witnessed these men suffer with Jesus. Commentators believe this was likely a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus with them. It said everyone crowded around them. Like, how can this be? How can you be okay right now in your suffering? And they got to display the saving power of God. Church, it is simply a biblical fact that our suffering and our fruitfulness go hand in hand. It's the way God prunes us, makes us holy. It's the way the world looks in and says, How, what's going? This doesn't make sense. It is our greatest gospel opportunity. And the other thing I want us to notice about as Jesus draws near in our suffering for fruitfulness is this. Paul never really got this kind of experience until he was in this scenario, this suffering scenario. And, and what I want us to, to know that this is a testimony of so many is that we never, we never experience the nearness of Jesus like we do when we're suffering. It's just true. Uh, there's a missionary named John Patton in the 1800s, and he went to this island, these, these islands in the South Pacific. Uh, they, they were cannibals. They were unreached for the gospel. Um, and he's like, I, I got to get there. I'm willing to suffer. And um, he spends many years there. It's not really successful. Uh, there's one man who becomes friendly to him. He's like, I, I, I couldn't tell if he was saved or not saved, but he was friendly to him. And one night, uh, the, the people there decided Uh, It's time to kill John. We're gonna kill him and eat him. And so the man runs to him and warns him, hey, they're coming for you tonight. And he says, here's what you should do. You should run up, run up this tree, climb this tree, hide in this tree, and I'll just tell them that you're passing on. And uh, so this, this happened. And then years later, he wrote of this experience. I want us to read, this is from his autobiography. This is his testimony. It says this, the hours spent there live all before me as if it were but of yesterday. I heard the frequent discharges of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus." Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Church, that kind of intimacy with Jesus is available maybe only in our suffering. Uh, this is something we, we need to remember when suffering comes, when it came for Paul. It's so natural to run from it. And if we can get out of it, that's fine. But let's, let's have a category for this. Like a category for pressing into the presence of Jesus in our suffering. What the enemy would do is start lying. God isn't good. He's not gonna save you. He's not, look what he's letting happen. Let this minister to you. I'm gonna draw near to the presence of Jesus. Though I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. He is with me. And now the last truth we'll get uh, in suffering is, is found in the last bit of this chapter. So I'm gonna read the rest of this chapter and then we'll, we'll notice one more thing. So let's pick it up again in uh, 20, chapter 23, verse 12. It says this. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. 
More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul, Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they led the cavalry on with him and while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. What we need to notice, church, is this. There was a plot, an organized plot against Paul's life. Uh, there was real evil and suffering planned by enemies against Paul. And yet we see the careful hand of God in this story. And if we could sum up what we see here is this, church, hear this. Our suffering is not random, but passes through the careful hands of God. Every bit of suffering in your life passes through the careful hands of God. We believe in a universe God created, that God sovereignly rules and reigns over. We have seen and we will read more in his word that he is sovereign. That though there is an enemy, Satan, and though he has been given some authority, it is, it is always on a leash. Satan cannot do a thing we've seen in scripture apart from it passing through the careful hands of God. We see human beings are are, are truly moral, responsible creatures that have evil intent. And though they pursue evil, not, not an act of evil happens apart from the careful hands of God. We see this first and foremost in the cross. 
Satan's evil plans, man's evil plans. Yet what is God doing? He's redeeming the world from their sin. We see this in the life of Joseph when his brothers out of jealousy sold him into slavery. He was wrongly accused. He was in jail. And yet it says God sent him, not his brothers. God sent him that he would be used to save many. And then Joseph at the end of his life said, what you intended for evil, God is bigger than that. And God meant it for good. We, our, our only hope in our suffering is that God is big enough, is big enough to carefully direct and manage and hold back our suffering. In this story, men plotted to kill Paul and God said, no, that's not, that's not how it's gonna go. I'm intervening. I'm, I'm stopping him. I love one, one commentator, one pastor, John Stott said, even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. No weapon formed against him will prevail. Church, I, I just, we have to know this because in seasons of suffering, we, our souls need a rock that doesn't move, that isn't surprised, that wind and waves can't affect, that God is that rock and that refuge. And we're gonna see, we've read some of these verses even recently, but we just need to see this in scripture. I have, one, I have six verses, passages for us to increase our confidence in the character and nature of God, even in the midst of evil people and evil actions and Satan himself, it all passes through the careful hands of God. Look at first Isaiah 46, verse 10. <laughs> Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Church, the Bible says that, that we are, are works of art in God's hands, that he who began a good work in your life will see it to the end. Meaning no counsel of it, any human being or Satan himself can affect what God's gonna accomplish in your life. God is sovereign. He is bigger than these things. He's even bigger than our own sin and rebellion. He's gonna accomplish his work in our life. Look at Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Look at Daniel chapter four. This is another chapter later. King Nebuchadnezzar, after another miracle happens, um, he, was, he was judged by God. He lost his wit. It's a crazy story. He gives credit back to God and, and this is what he says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Not a person in your life can stay the hand of God in your life. Look at Lamentations chapter three. This one is heavy, but it's really, really important. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the most high that both calamities and good things come. 
what this verse is saying is there's no evil thing that like took God by surprise. And do you know what else it's saying? There's gonna come a day when you will be with Jesus in heaven and you will look back on the calamities of your life and you will see the hand of God and you will see how he is working calamities for your good and his glory. Let's look at Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, all things in our life. And finally, Ephesians 1, 11, in him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Church, every bit of suffering in our life is not random. It passes through the careful hands of God to sanctify us, to purify us, that we may be fruitful. And, and probably millions of other reasons that we just won't understand. His ways aren't our ways. But we do know that every bit of suffering has never been done apart from God. That's why Jesus says not a sparrow dies. The sparrow that no one knows about or cares about apart from the hand of our Father. Not a, not, a, not a strike against Paul's body happened apart from God. Not nothing in our life happens apart from the careful, sovereign hands of God, which is like an anchor to our soul in seasons of suffering. We may not know, we may not know what he's doing or why he's doing it, but we can know he is God. He is ruling and reigning. He will work this for our good. Church, our suffering, in our suffering, Jesus is near. Our suffering is an opportunity for fruitfulness and our suffering is always carefully passing through the hands of God. Um, I'm gonna pray for us, invite the worship team up and then and speak a few things about our time of worship. So Jesus, would you increase our confidence in who you are, in your character, in your word, in your promises? Jesus, where else would we go in our suffering? Where else would we go? Where else would we go for help, for comfort, for purpose? Lord, nowhere else but you. You are our rock and our refuge that cannot be moved. Jesus, I thank you that you love each one of your precious sheep in this room. And you are so aware of their suffering from the moment they were born until the moment they will breathe their last breath, Jesus, you know our suffering and you are with us in our suffering and you are gonna make fruit come through our suffering and it's all according to your plans and your purposes. Even that great mystery, Lord, we don't understand how or why you're doing all things, but we know you are God and you are good and you will work all things for our good because we love you. So God, I pray that this time of worship um, we would find just a rock and a refuge for our soul. We would, when our hearts are overwhelmed, if our hearts are overwhelmed, we would find a rock that is higher than we are. It's Jesus. We would see Jesus, you ruling and reigning, standing with us, sustaining the universe with your promise that you are coming soon to make all things right. And we will be given a new body and a new earth where there is no more suffering for eternity. And we'll be able to look back and, and see your hand in our life and in our suffering. So please be a rock and a refuge to us this morning. Lord, if any are, are facing doubt, would they be honest with you? 
they be honest with others. Lord, if any of us um, are suffering for our own sin, would we be so quick to confess it and repent? Would you, your, your loving hand of a father that disciplines, would, would you just restore us back to the, 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 the narrow way of walking with you, Jesus? For those of us who may be suffering and um, maybe we're facing our final days, Jesus, I just ask for a supernatural anticipation of seeing your face, knowing that our suffering is just temporary and we will be with you forever, that that day is coming. Would we set our hope where you are seated on your throne? Know that that day is coming. And until then, if we have breath, would we bear fruit for you, Jesus? Would we be fruitful in our suffering to proclaim that our God can save? Our God has saved us and can save many more. Make us a fruitful church even as we suffer. Church, we have a a prayer team that's gonna be coming up on both sides. Um, We should utilize this team more. These are godly anointed people who just wanna hear from you, wanna pray for you. give you biblical counsel that they're going to be available. We have carpets up here where we're going to have opportunity to get on our face, to bow, to kneel, to do what the Bible says. Um, There's freedom in this room to worship as the Bible says, which includes dancing and shouting and raising our hands and also being still and silent before the Lord. We have communion here where we can remember that Jesus suffered in a way that we never will have to because of the cross. That Jesus removed death and the curse paid all the price of all of our sins. So let's take that and know that his body was broken. If our bodies are, are breaking or broken, no, his body was broken for us. And then let's just fix our eyes on Jesus. The best thing we can do is what Paul got to do in his jail cell and just spend time in intimacy with Jesus. Let's worship him now.